electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. I'm John Ford. Here's what's ahead. Cheap hope. That's what one analyst says is the bull case for Intel right now in its attempt to revitalize the business. We're going to ask why the kitchen sink approach, as you might put it, isn't enough. Plus, the social giants set to testify again in front of Congress. We will get an inside look at the questioning that we can expect. And GameStop's Nothing Burger earnings report sends the stock sinking. But we begin with today's markets overall. Dom Chu with those numbers. The markets overall are continuing a near-term trend, John, where we are seeing some outperformance in the Dow and the S&P, perhaps a little bit of underperformance for the Nasdaq Composite. As you can see here, the Dow Industrials, 32,704, the last trade there, up about 284 points, about 1% decline, or advances up there, half a percent advances for the S&P 500. Meanwhile, three-quarters of 1% declines for the Nasdaq Composite. That level stands at 13,133 and change. Now, one of the big technology stories driving some of that Nasdaq and S&P trade is what's happening with the semiconductor stocks. If you look at the S&P 500 versus the semis, it's been a huge performance gap between the two. Take a look at that. 101% advance there for the semiconductors. Now, we're seeing a little bit of that give back today. But again, bullish news on semiconductors could be one of those leading indicators for us. The market we will see if that trend plays out. And maybe the stock move of the day so far. It's an eye-catching one to the downside. Viacom CBS, we've been telling you for a couple of weeks now that this has been one of the best performing stocks, media or otherwise, in the S&P 500, the best performer over the last year entering yesterday's trade. It's now down 18% today after a big decline yesterday. That brings its total decline to roughly 27% from the highs we saw just two days ago. Uh, remember, Viacom CBS saying that they could raise cap or they will raise $3 billion of new share capital through a stock sale, convertible stock sale. So, that news sending Viacom CBS shares down. This was a $101 stock just three days ago, John. Viacom CBS, certainly one to watch. I'll send things back over to you. Indeed, Dom, thanks. Meanwhile, Intel unveiled its biggest comeback plan, including a $20 billion investment to build two new chip plants in Arizona. I spoke with CEO Pat Gelsinger in his first broadcast interview as the company's new CEO, asked him how we're going to know whether he's on track at the end of this year. And we're going to give indicators along the way and, uh, you know, of customers that have committed uh, to the foundry. So some of it will be customer counts. You know, I'll probably give some metrics around how many wafer start commitments we have to customers. You know, things that allow investors to say, okay, they're doing what they said they would. And as you've seen uh, from me as CEO uh, at VMware, you know, we want the say-do ratio to be extraordinary for the path of the company going forward. We're going to say something, and then we're going to over-deliver against it in a consistent way. So some of those early indicators are going to be super important because they're also going to be ones that we want to get out there, not just to satisfy investors, but to build confidence in the customers. And if customer X hears that Y and Z have already committed some of their designs, oh, that's going to build confidence on their part as well. Now, this ambitious move to expand comes at a time when demand is outweighing supply. But I asked Pat if this strategy poses a risk to the company if the gap between supply and demand closes. 
I believe that the world has a 10-year good cycle in front of it, uh, John. And when you think about, you know, every industry is becoming more digital, right? Every aspect of education, of healthcare, of automotive, you know, our human existence is becoming more digital. And COVID was a big accelerator to that trend that was already underway. So first, I believe this is a robust market for many years to come. Clearly, there's you know, different gaps in supply and challenges that you work through. But we're leaning into that because these capacity decisions need to be made years in advance. And part of our current shortages are the decisions that the industry didn't make several years ago. So we're saying we're going to lean into that aggressively. Joining me now is Stacy Rasgun, a senior semiconductor analyst at Bernstein. Stacy, you're literally not buying it, keeping your $43 price target on this stock that's at about 63. It would seem that if there's any time to sort of bet on Intel, now would be that time. Why do you? Why are you unimpressed? Well, yeah, you know, I, you know, I heard you referring to cheap hope. So, like that—that that is the you know the phrase that we've been using for a while. It's not just. But if it's cheap, why not buy it? Expensive hope, isn't that worse? Well, look, in tech, by the way, cheap is never a reason to buy a stock all by itself. <laughs> Just like expensive is never a reason to sell a stock in tech all by itself. Like, you need more than, than cheap. Um, now, you do have the whole piece of this. And by the way, like, don't, I, I like Pat. <laughs> and this is one thing that Pat's been very good at doing. Pat, Pat can bring, bring hope, right? He's been doing the stocks up. I don't know what it is, 25% or something since he took the job. Um, and he can give credibility, like he's more capable of correctly judging the risks and the opportunities from whatever the opportunities are, are in front of him versus, say, the prior management team. Um, maybe he can do something on, you know, on the HR side and keep talent there and everything. So these, these are all good things that Pat can do. At the same time, you, you know, it's sort of interesting. The Part of the bull case on the stock like two or three months ago was they were going to go fab light. <laughs> and now it's like we're going to double down on everything. And, and, you know, we've been having execution issues, but we're going to fix those execution issues Plus, we're going to outsource more. Plus, we're going to enter this, this brand new business, which is massively capital intensive, and go head to head with TSMC um, and execute on everything like cleanly where they haven't been able to do that before. Like, it, it's a lot to take in mm-hmm. at this point. Um, it is. I think you look, the hope is going to be that, and by the way, I think that the, the, the general, you know, like kind of like, like transition economics are going to get worse. I mean, they already lowered guidance this year. You can actually see in the gross margins and free cash where the economics are getting worse. My guess is that hasn't stopped. The hope is going to be that, like, with, with Foundry or with everything else, that they can give some certainty for what a trough earnings will be and that it won't go lower and that on that number the stock's still inexpensive enough where you can take a flyer on, on, on the longer. That's kind of what I mean by cheap hope. The problem right now is we don't actually know what the trough earnings are. Right. The trough well, right now are, are inflated. I know he was talking about a 10-year cycle, which, by the way, he's probably right, but, like, PCs are running at levels that were close to the 2011 peak, like after a year or two. I don't think Let me ask you the inverse of the question that I asked him. Because if I step back, interest rates are low. There's more reason than ever for the U.S. government and government in Europe to support exactly what Intel is trying to do. He is on paper the guy for this job. But as you point out, they have failed at Foundry before and the full year guide doesn't look great. So how will we know if Pat Gelsinger is failing at the end of 2021. Yeah. And this is interesting, by the way, because like, you know, he got there, I don't know, five, six weeks ago, officially. They didn't throw this, this together in five or six weeks. They hadn't been do, working on this before, but I don't think Bob Swan could have sold this to the street. Like, Pat can, right? He's got that credibility. So that's probably one reason Pat had to, had to go. Um, in terms of the subsidies, you're, you're absolutely right. And by the way, this is, this is not a dumb thing that they're doing, right? 
if, if there's any time, like we've got a perfect storm in semis right now where they can take advantage of this and they can actually get external subsidies from the government to do this, that's great. I'm less convinced that it's all going to the foundry business. I mean, even if they're building out foundry initially, it's going to be very, very small, right? Like that, 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 those dollars, that capacity they're building will be for themselves. And then over time, if, as foundry grows, it'll take more and more of that. So, and then if foundry fails, I mean, they don't have to give the tools back. So if, in some sense, if they're, they've got a structurally higher CapEx, they're, they're 20 billion they're guiding for this year is for themselves. It's not for the foundry business. If their capex is going to be running that high, if they can actually get some money from the government to help offset the, that, that, that's not a dumb thing. That's a very smart plan, in that sense. But in general, like I said, the the, the costs are going up, the economics are going to get worse, and we'll just have to see kind of what they say in terms of monitoring this stuff. But I mean, we're really not going to see anything in terms of like actual like like numbers that you can really tie into for until twenty twenty three or probably even beyond that. And and the roadmap for the next several years is baked, right? The AMD story, like they're still going to be taking share. Apple's still going to be moving away. You've got ARM getting deployed in much bigger numbers, both in PCs and the data center. Like that is all going to happen. Yeah. There's no way to stop it. And those are just based on decisions that were made several years ago, just like the, the capacity decisions that he was talking about. You know, hard to argue with what you're saying. Uh, you know, I, I will say what's interesting about the Microsoft story over the past decade was that the multiple expansion came before the real shift in numbers. The story there and the street believing that story also had a big impact. Stacey, we've got to leave it there for now. Um, you know, quite a lot for investors to take in, whether to, oh, yeah. whether to eat these chips. Stacey Razgan. <laughs> Mark you. Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, and Sundar Pichai testifying before the House Energy and Commerce Committee tomorrow on misinformation on their platforms and what might be done about it. The CEOs releasing their testimony today. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg saying, quote, we are committed to keeping people safe on our services and to protecting free expression and we work hard to set and enforce policies that meet those goals. Meanwhile, Twitter's Jack Dorsey says, quote, our efforts to combat misinformation, however, must be linked to earning trust. Without trust, we know the public will continue to question our enforcement actions. Joining me now are two members of the committee demanding answers, Representative Mark Vesey, a Democrat from Texas, and Representative uh, Mark Wayne Mullen, a Republican from Oklahoma. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Representative Mullen, what's the most important thing that you think we can actually learn from this process, uh, aside from sort of the, the posturing that we sometimes see here and the testimony that's already been written down? Well, one thing we don't want to hear is uh, the CEOs, once again, just tell us excuses and say, we weren't aware of that and we'll get back to you. We've, we've had them in front of the committee before. Uh, we, they've testified to in front of us before we were concerned about censoring at that point. Uh, you know, they, they're protected by Section 230 and Section 230 is very open. It means that you, you're not monitoring the content. This goes back all the way to the public square where you literally hammered and nailed uh, your messages down. And the people there were that was providing the, the property or the post, they weren't held liable for what was said. We've extended Section 230 to these platforms because we 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 seen it as the modern day public square. But what we've seen with, with Facebook, what we've seen with Google, what we've seen with Twitter, is that they are continuing to, to monitor what is said and they're choosing to remove posts that they deem um, not acceptable. Well, that's not what two section, or Section 230 does. It provides an open platform and they're not the ones to monitor that content. And, and there's a difference between disagreeing with a view and, and having a, a vulgar or, or something um, unacceptable posted there, such as, as, as a sexual content 
um, or something that is immediately inciting violence. But just because you don't agree with someone's political view, you can't remove that. And so we're going to be asking those questions to to the CEOs of these companies and ask them how they're defending it and how they come up with how they're going to monitor it at the same time why they should still be protected by Section right. 230. Uh, and Representative Vizi, uh, the companies are going to say, we don't remove posts because of people's political opinions. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Democrats are arguing that we leave that stuff up too much. And as a matter of fact, we remove stuff when there's uh, harm threatened to individuals, things like that. Uh, it, it seems everybody's attacking 230, but nobody seems to agree on how to fix it. Yeah, I mean, and it, look, it's, it's tough to fix it, right? I mean, uh, you want to try to keep these platforms as open and as free as possible. Uh, but uh, also, you know, these companies need to be held accountable uh, when they do things that put the public's uh, safety and health uh, at jeopardy. Uh, I think that it's, uh, you know, very serious when you think about the way how they monetize a lot of this behavior that can lead to even other things like discrimination in the areas of housing, uh, and employment. I also uh, think that look, there's a there's a ton of, of of conservative content that's on all of these platforms. If you go to uh, Twitter or Facebook, you can you find uh, all of the all of these guys that are on talk radio that also have these sites. I think that what the companies need to do is to make sure that we don't have repeats of what happened on January the sixth, and they and and they do have an obligation to make sure that they are not allowing content on there that can lead to us. Uh, having uh, a situation at the Capitol again where we had mm. people that were, were killed, including well, a police officer and a mom. So we, we sort of heard two, two ends of this to some extent. And Congressman uh, Mullen, even aside from Section 230, look at Parler. They, they weren't really uh, having a heavy hand by, by any stretch of the imagination in monitoring right. the content. And Amazon Web Services said, you know what, that's a problem. Apple said, you know what, that's a problem. You're, you're not uh, behaving according to our terms of service. So even if you're not dealing with 230, I think there are questions around appropriateness according to the standards of, of tech platforms, are there not? Well, there is, but that's when you get into antitrust. And I think these companies are also going to be looking at antitrust issues too, <clears throat> which <clears throat> I get we're not digging into that. Uh, and, and the energy and commerce. And tomorrow we probably won't even be talking about antitrust. But these companies need to know that, that, that if they continue to choose who can and can't be on their platform by the simple fact that they don't agree with what they're posting or their content that they're posting or allowed to be posted, when these companies are protected by Section 230, that's an issue. Uh, when you start, and Mark is a good friend of mine. I mean, Mark and I, we fly back and forth to DC all the time. We've known each other for a long time and we get along actually great. And so we, we agree with what we're talking about, what we agree, disagree on, what content should be removed and who's monitoring that. For instance, when you, when you look at what Twitter and Facebook did to New York Post when they wouldn't let the Hunter Biden story be posted, when that was actual factual, these are two, uh, or the New York Post is a credible media outlet, and they, they wouldn't allow them to post a story. How is that uh, not censoring the content that is there? When you have uh, Candace Owens uh, that was removed from, uh, <coughs> removed from Twitter, when she criticized the governor of Michigan about the mask mandate, uh, that's her opinion. She's a, she's she's voicing her opinion. That's called free speech, and they removed that well, content. Interesting, that is though, not in the context. Biden. 
We, we did have uh, a, a known threat on the life of the governor uh, of Michigan attached to those very sorts of comments. So I, I'm sure that's so, how so that wasn't, the social networks would, would counter. But Kent Owens did was well, that. Uh, it wasn't her. But that's that. that's the environment in which it stood. Uh, Congressman VC, um, you know, clearly this. Though you're friends, uh, we're not coming to agreement here. What progress do you think can be made coming out of this hearing? Uh, I think that they need to be able to articulate to the committee, uh, you know, how they're going to be able to continue to have uh, a a platform where people can share information and it can be open, but it's not to the detriment of people's health. I mean, there's things right now going uh, that, that are being spread around on Facebook, for instance, urging African-Americans to not get the vaccine for COVID-19. And a lot of this information is, that's being uh, spread throughout uh, uh, Facebook and, and, and uh, Twitter is, 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 is false. It's saying all these things that are going to happen. And look, uh, it, it needs to be fair and open, but should people be able to put things like that on there? I, I, no, they shouldn't. I don't care if conservative content is on there. Again, there's a ton of conservative uh, content on there. But I do think that when people are, are using it as a, as, as a, to weaponize lies and misinformation, then I think that, that the sites absolutely do have an obligation to pull it down, whether it's on the left or right. Yes. Well, Facebook has said as of last month that they uh, aim to take down misinformation on vaccines. Not sure how that applies to opinions. But uh, thank you, Congressman Mark VC and Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, the bond market seems to be stabilizing this week, yields actually moving lower. So does that mean the tech sector is getting ready for a rebound? We will ask. Plus, cruise lines have new plans to get around CDC guidelines and hit the seas. It's good news for the industry, but potentially bad news for U.S. jobs. We've got the details. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow. Today, pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to the exchange. Rates have stabilized somewhat over the past week, despite all of the Fed speak since last Wednesday. On a day when the 10-year yield is remaining calm, you'd expect the Nasdaq to be in the green, along with the Dow and S&P. Looks like the Nasdaq missed that memo. It's down about 1% after weeks under the influence of rising rates. So what accounts for the disconnect today? Joining us now is Abe Deshpande, uh, Chief Investment Officer for Centerstone Investors. Abe, um, is the tail still wagging the dog here with yields and the NASDAQ and tech stocks, or is there more to it? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's probably, there's always more to it, right? Um, <laughs> and so I think in this case, maybe there's a, a couple of things that are happening. One is that the economy's opening up, and that's really the main thing, right? The uh, economy's opening up, and it's pushing yields up because there's expectations of inflation, all these bottlenecks everywhere. And at the same time, the uh, stay-at-home trade is, is, you know, people are rethinking that because of the uh, obvious consequences of opening up the rest of the economy. 
So what looked like a one-to-one sort of correlation, that is bond yields go up and, uh, and NASDAQ goes down, I think those are actually separate things. They happen to coincidentally be related, but the, the main uh, the common thread is the economy is just opening up. So you can actually have and probably will have um, scenarios like this that we have today where you, rates are flat, cut, the NASDAQ is weak, and, and vice versa. Uh, you know, the things that will drive interest rate trends don't always drive stock trends. Uh, you know, for instance, the long bond market can be manipulated by the Federal Reserve. Um, right. And there can be bubbles in stocks, which we, we've had, clearly had for the last uh, few months. So speaking of, speaking of, you, you guys at Centerstone focus on value. You're, you're global in your view. So, yeah, things are opening up. And so one might think, let's look at the sorts of companies that are going to benefit from that. But a lot of those companies have had a nice run already. So how do you determine where value is within that cohort? Yeah, I mean, they've had a nice run from you know, 60%, 70% off, right? I mean, <laughs> right. Frankfurt is a, a good example. That's an airport operator in Frankfurt. You can guess what happened to the stock. It went down a lot, but it went from 100 to 30. And the stock's trading at 50 now. Um, I can make a good case that there's a lot of value there, well in excess of the current stock price, just the asset value. And that's what's wonderful about value investing is we can, we don't have to look about, you know, 20 years down the future about what battery demand's going to be or whatever electricity <laughs> electric car demand is going to be. Value investing is about the here and now. It's the bird in hand versus the two in bush. And there's a lot of birds in hand potentially right now in the value space, despite this big run-up from the last uh, six months or so. All right. Nice. The flip side of GameStop. <laughs> Abe Despande. Thank you. Thanks. Coming up, entrepreneur, CEO, and author Ariana Huffington joins us for a look at the gender pay gap and why the pandemic might have halted progress against it. And Mark Cuban enters the NFT world. We got those details. Be right back. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Uh, Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are mixed with the Dow seeing its biggest... uh, gains and the biggest one-day gain in two weeks. The Nasdaq in the red, nearing session lows. Let's check the sectors. Energy, industrials, and materials are your leaders. Communication services and tech, your laggards. Here are some of the movers this hour. Uh, Alcoa moving higher on an upgrade to overweight at Morgan Stanley. This on raising its target from 20 to $43. General Mills lower on an earnings miss. Revenue did beat, but disappointing organic growth in North America was one of the weak spots. And take a look at some of the at-home stocks. Peloton and Zoom, both under pressure today. Peloton down more than 8%. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, John. Hello, everyone. Wow, that's a new shot there. 13 state attorneys general are suing the Biden administration over its energy policy. They want to end a pause in new oil and gas leases on federal land. Louisiana's attorney general says that the halt on new leases is raising energy prices and also costing jobs. 
and bolder as people continue to mourn the fatal shooting of 10 people at a supermarket. A first court date has been set for the suspected gunman. He's expected to face a judge tomorrow morning. And see how the Boulder community is coming together in the wake of that shooting tonight on the News with Shepard Smith. And Americans celebrating Easter are expected to spend a record amount on the holiday this year. A poll from the National Retail Federation says that consumers will spend on average $180. Gifts, food and candy show the biggest increases with total Easter spending expected to hit $21.6 billion. And John, I can tell you that I already have friends who have already bought candy, not for their kids, for themselves. Okay. No well, judgment. <laughs> a, a couple of days ago, you were talking about the pounds that people have put on during the pandemic. So maybe all of this ties don't together. Don't be judgy, John. I don't know your friends. <laughs> all right. Just saying. All right. Thank you, Rahel. Sure. Coming up, GameStop seems to believe that less is more. Cars meet crypto plus sailing past regulations. That's ahead in rapid fire. The exchange is back after this. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire. Here with their takes, Bob Pisani, Sima Modi, and Robert Frank. First topic, GameStop shares plunging down more than 19% on disappointing earnings and a lack of detail from executives on the call. GameStop did announce former Amazon and Google exec Jenna Owens is going to take over as COO and disclosed it might sell shares to fund its digital transformation. The company provided no information on its transformation plan, though, and no questions were allowed on the call. Bob, you said this call was a nothing burger? It was a nothing burger. I mean, really, what happened to all of this talk about a digital transformation? Nothing. No earnings call. They read a statement and they just hung up on everybody. Everyone was ready to start asking questions and there was nobody there. They just hung up. I think the most important thing that happened today is they're considering selling additional shares. But this is a very different thing. At the market offering, it's called. And you can do an offering of this up to 100 million shares at any time, then stop or start it. That's not like a traditional secondary here. Here, you don't have any fixed number or a fixed price or a fixed time. So all of a sudden, you could have additional shares on the market very, very quickly. <laughs> the last thing, John, it, the volume is terrible today. It's one third normal volume here. So what we have is not a lot of sellers, but not a lot of interested buyers at the same time, which is why the price is down. I think people are really having a hard time figuring out what the right price is for this for this company. Robert, uh, we've been watching this stock for a while. I don't know what to make of it. I mean, it, it seems like all of Wall Street is probably that loves volatility is probably all over uh, this stock. But a lot of it comes down to Cohen. Yeah, it does. Look, I just hope that the Reddit traders with diamond hands also have iron stomachs because there is no sign that the Ryan Cohen revolution is happening or even starting is a company that has had nine straight quarters of sales declines. Forget about profit declines, nine quarters of sales declines. And I also thought from a Wall Street perspective, it was interesting. The secondary offering was assigned to Jefferies. Jefferies up their price target yesterday to $175. The rest of the street is at 25 I would never say that their research is influenced by their <laughs> banking relationship. But it's just it's interesting that most of the street has a $25 price target on this thing. Yeah, uh, you can't even buy a video game for that. Right. Next up, cruise lines rallying today after getting hit yesterday amid concerns over new lockdowns. It comes as a trade group is asking the CDC to allow sailings from U.S. ports to resume by July. 
The group argues they should be treated like other travel companies, and the July timeline is in line with the president's comments that Americans should be able to gather in small groups again by Independence Day. But at least one company has a way to get around all this. Seema, you've been following this for us. Uh, what's going on? Yeah, so John, you can really feel the frustration of these cruise lines and that strongly worded statement to uh, the CDC urging them to allow them to to lift sail uh, here in the United States in early July. Till they get that, some cruise lines are saying we're not just going to wait around. Uh, Royal Caribbean is launching two new sailings, one out of Bermuda, the other out of the Bahamas. These sailings will not stop at U.S. ports. Instead, they'll take advantage of their private island, Coco Cay. The one um, out of Bahamas will also stop in Mexico. The only challenge I could foresee, John, now if you're sitting in Kansas and you're a loyal cruise passenger, instead of just booking a flight to Miami and then getting on board, you now have to book a flight to the Bahamas. It may cost a little bit more. It's also a longer flight. You then have to test negative for COVID before getting on board. You also have to be vaccinated if you're above the age of 18. Uh, So we'll have to see what bookings really tell us about the demand for these type of sailings. But it really just showcases how these cruise lines have had to get a bit creative on on getting uh, in front of their Mm. passenger and also taking advantage of that crucial summer sailing season. Robert, uh, that's a lot of hoops to jump through. You think enough people are itching to get back on a boat? I, I am consistently surprised, John and Seema, how throughout this crisis, you know, we had sort of a false start last year where we thought we would maybe get cruising in the fall. How many signups there were? I mean, after everything that's happened, uh, you know, even pre-COVID about the health and safety of being on these cruises, uh, there are more people than I ever estimate that just love to cruise and can't wait to get back. And this is also huge for Florida and its economy. So they need it, too. Well, there's some hardcore cruise people like they just they love to oh, cruise. Yeah. yeah. All right. And then this Elon Musk is really, really embracing crypto. Musk tweeting, you can now buy a Tesla with Bitcoin. He clarified the payment option is available only in the U.S., but it's going to be available internationally later this year. Tesla shares are down today. They're down more than 20 percent since Musk revealed Tesla acquired 1.5 billion in Bitcoin last month. I mean, Bitcoin, I think, is up since then. Uh, Robert, a lot of billionaires that are talking about Bitcoin and crypto and Dogecoin and I'm not sure whether we should follow the billionaires this time. I I don't know either. There there are two funny things about this. The first is that people have been buying expensive cars with crypto for years. There was a great story in 2017. A guy bought a Lamborghini for 45 bitcoins. Now, he had had spent $115 for those bitcoins that then translated into a $250,000 car. He was proud of it. But... Those bitcoins today would be worth two and a half million dollars. So he gave up seven Lamborghinis by giving up the currency. There's also an issue with the tax. Let's say you buy a $70,000 Tesla. You're paying $14,000 in capital gains tax, perhaps, by trading in the Bitcoin. Because anytime you buy anything with Bitcoin, you pay a capital gains tax. So cash always makes more sense than Bitcoin, whether you're buying a car or a house. Bob, should you buy GameStop with Bitcoin? (laughs) <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, and I agree. Uh, B- Bitcoin is certainly not a, a, a very viable payment system yet. Uh, one thing, uh, some people are thinking Tesla's tied to Bitcoin. I don't understand that at all. When did they make that announcement? I think it was February 8th. Tesla's down noticeably since they made that announcement. Bitcoin is up. 
noticeably since they made that announcement. So there's that's certainly not tied to Bitcoin's fortunes at all. I think Tesla is a lot more tied to situations like higher interest rates and some concerns about future cash flows uh, related to higher interest rates than it is to Bitcoin right now, though. All right. One more. Uh, another day, another celebrity getting into NFTs. This time, uh, it's Mark Cuban. Cuban telling The Block that he's building out a digital gallery called Lazy.com. It's currently uh, being beta tested. It's going to allow users to display their digital art all in one place. No word on an official launch. Uh, NFTs have caught the attention of big names from Time Magazine to quarterback Patrick Mahomes, who you saw right here on the exchange. Seema, I think this is coming around to physical display. And I, I know Cuban's gallery here is partly digital, but, you know, th this is going to be about real stuff eventually. Yeah, we got to see this display at the Met one day. That's when we know the NFT market has truly arrived. What I like about this idea, John, is that Cuban seems to be not just you know, launching an NFT like every other celebrity or high-profile investor, but instead trying to create, I think, in addition to a museum, a marketplace, right, to sort of view the different NFTs and digital art that is around us. Over time, if he can create that into sort of an e-commerce platform in, in some ways, that could be really interesting so more people have access and know where to find um, this digital art. And Robert, do you know who Metacoven nope. is yet? And I mean, you know, you know the, the super rich better than anybody. What good is spending millions of dollars on something if you can't show it off? Yeah, now you've been making that point all along, and it is such a good point that all these billionaires are now catching up to, John, which is that you buy a trophy asset to be a trophy to show off. And now they're doing that. Metacoven, who has revealed his identity, he's an Indian living in Singapore. He's building a lot of these through his company Metapurse, these virtual museums. And he has announced recently that he's going to build a special museum for this Beeple piece that he bought for $69 million. So I, I do think it's going to be a trend when you buy these things to find a place to display them. The other thing about Mark Cuban is he has a lot riding on NFTs. He's a big investor in Mintable. He's an investor in OpenSea. Those are both trading platforms. And as an MBA owner, he gets proceeds from the Dapper Labs uh, collaboration with the NBA. So he, he's invested perhaps more than anyone and has investments riding on the future of NFTs. So yeah, he's talking well, his book, but I also think he's building something yeah. that's valuable. Bob Pazani, give us your closing take. You, you, know, you know, the big, the big point here is the collectible, the collectible market for everything is exploding. And the question is, is NFTs really uh, a unique asset, like collecting posters or comic books, something like that. And they're acting like it is. I don't know if it is. I, I don't understand the debate about the prices are $60 million. Uh, I collected comic books in the 1960s. The first Superman sold for a million dollars in 2010. And everybody said, who's going to spend a million dollars for a comic book? Somebody did. That comic book now routinely sells for two to three million dollars. So Do you have it, Bob? It's worth what anybody is willing to pay for it. No, I, not that one. But uh, uh, that comic book you could have bought for $5,000 1969. All right. Well, I hope you got some good ones. Thank you, <laughs> Bob Pisani, Seema Modi, <laughs> and Robert Frank. Still ahead, it is Equal Pay Day here in the U.S., which aims to raise awareness of the ongoing gender pay gap between men and women. Up next, we will speak with Ariana Huffington about that and more. The Exchange will be right back.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Today, March 24th, is Equal Pay Day because this is how far into 2021, from January 1st, 2020, women have to work to catch up with what men earned just last year. Julia Borston is here with details and a special guest. Julia. Thanks, John. Well, women were paid 82 cents to every dollar paid to men as of 2019 census data. Now, the gap does vary by race. Compared to white men, Latinas are paid 55 cents on the dollar, Native American women 60 cents, and Black women 63 cents on the dollar. Now, that's one reason the pandemic is hitting women so hard. The National Women's Law Center calculates that the more than $10,000 typically lost to women annually as a result of the pay gap could have paid for over a year of groceries at a time when over 12 million women have said they do not have enough to eat. New analysis finds that the gender pay gap actually narrowed over the past 12 months from 81 cents to 84 cents. But that does not mean that women are being paid more, but rather that women lost jobs in low-paid sectors such as retail, leisure, and hospitality. And that wage gap is forecast to widen again come 20 later in 2021. Now, joining us now is a woman who has made equal pay one of the many issues that she champions, multiple-time founder and CEO Ariana Huffington, founder and CEO of Thrive Global. Ariana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Julia. Great to be with you. So, Ariana, of course, Thrive consults to companies about how to improve their employee well-being. And I know you have a new book coming out on that very topic. But before we get to that, let's dig in here on equal pay. You've written about this in the past. How should companies be thinking about the importance of closing pay gaps? So what we think is very important with all our work with Fortune 500 companies, Julia, is to look at the pay gap in the larger context also of the fact that women still carry a disproportionate amount of work at home. And during the pandemic, when our homes have become the most important place combining work, uh, family, school, women have been so unequally burdened that we've seen over 2 million women having to leave the workforce. So this is an opportunity to really address a systemic injustice, both in terms of pay, but also in terms of how work is divided, in terms of what we call the mental load women have to carry. And we've launched a program called Working Families that really disrupts work-life integration and creates an entire organizational system that divides chores more equally based on an ownership model than on can I help you with lunch, dear, model. And it may sound like small micro steps, but we believe we need to start taking these small micro steps at home and we need companies to encourage this work-life integration so that women are not just paid unequally, but also carrying a larger part of the burden. Yeah, crucially, the work-life integration for men as well as women. You make a very good point that you can't talk about this issue and not talk about the whole workforce, all employees. So right now, with this inequity widening over the course of the pandemic as more women leave the workforce, what is your recommendation to companies right now, especially as some companies are hiring again, some are entering more of a hybrid work environment? Well, again, Julia, this is part of uh, the larger reckoning uh, post-pandemic, which is also a huge opportunity uh, to redefine productivity 
and recognize that well-being and productivity are interconnected. So we see now multiple employers who work with, whether it's Bank of America, Accenture, Salesforce, Hilton, making well-being central to what they are doing for their employees, giving cultural permission from the top. So it's no longer just an HR, warm and fuzzy, nice to have benefit, but intimately connected with business metrics like attrition, recruitment, and performance. And we even had this um, new SEC rule, which is quite groundbreaking, asking companies, mandating actually, that companies report on what they are doing for their human capital in terms of attraction, development, and retention, which again puts well-being, mental health, mental resilience at the center. Very interesting. Now, you're just this week releasing this new book that's based on all the data that you've gathered from your corporate clients. What are your recommendations to companies right now and to employees, especially as, as people reenter the in-person workplace? So, Julia, um, the book, which is called Time to Thrive, is based on a principle of micro steps. We find that a lot of companies, a lot of executives uh, are so overwhelmed. There are so many demands on their time that if you ask them um, to do anything to improve their well-being and their performance, it overwhelms them even more. So we've broken it down into what we call micro steps too small to fail. And there are hundreds of them in the book. And Everything based on the latest science that shows that, in fact, if we start these new micro steps, we build new, healthier and more productive habits. And let me give you my absolute favorite, which is based on the latest neuroscience that shows that it takes 60 to 90 seconds to course correct from stress. Like anybody uh, who is watching now is stressed. You know, we're not going to eliminate stress from our lives, but we can eliminate cumulative stress. We can avoid that simply by having the 60-second resets, as we call them, during the day, between Zoom meetings, after you received stressful news, before you go to bed, 60 seconds before you go to your phone in the morning. So in our work with companies, we put reset at the center, including with the call centers, Julia. You know, call centers are some mm -hmm. of the most stressed out parts of our economy. But if you feed these 60 second thrive calls to the operators, it really changes both the stress levels and customer success. Well, I hope, Ariana, as people return to the office, that it proves an opportunity for employees and companies to make some reset decisions. Ariana Huffington, thank you so much for joining us today on this Equal Pay Day. John? Thanks, Julia. Now, still ahead, with more than 45 million Americans now fully vaccinated, offices, schools, and venues are looking to bring people back. We'll talk to the CEO of a software platform that helps with contact tracing and verification of vaccination records. We'll learn what opening reopening might look like next. Microsoft announcing it is planning to phase workers back into offices starting this month, joining the likes of J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs and Walmart. But with vaccine distribution still underway, cases going up in a few areas, companies are looking to implement extra safety measures. That's where the software platform Cleared4 can help. It offers symptom monitoring, contact tracing and vaccine verification for employers and venues. 
like Yankee Stadium looking for a safe way to reopen. And joining me now to discuss is Cleared for CEO Dr. Somi Inchimpati. Um, Dr. Inchimpati, what's your assessment of where we are right now? You know, a quarter of the population, I think, has at least one shot of a vaccine. Uh, how, how careful do we need to be and how does Cleared for fit in? Sure, we need to be very careful. Cleared for fits in because it's a flexible software platform that helps society reopen. But the key is not to just reopen. The key is to reopen safely and importantly, stay open. We use the modification of a previous platform that was used for ER triage. So we're already in this platform of using health to uh, determine access control. Since then, as you mentioned, we've been partnering with the Yankees and Angels, but also a lot of other uh, venues such as offices, schools, and corporate events. And recently, as you mentioned, yes, we have incorporated testing and vaccine verification, which will be very important components of safety going forward. So how practically is this going to work for, you know, say a corporate campus that's looking to open back up? Maybe in the past you swiped your badge to get into a building and that was the end of it. What are the added pieces that uh, a system like Cleared for the, the software platform can help to monitor and what else needs to be in place for it to do its job? Sure. So the office is a great example, but we use our platform to really be agnostic and we can integrate into anything. We don't have a traditional app per se. We're really the middleware that integrates into other people's apps and other people's software platforms, such as corporate websites, etc. So we use our software to identify who the person is. We use the health information that they put in, and then we follow the business rules for each individual client. For example, in New York State, there'll be different rules for the offices to come back than in other states. And so we use the individual states and the individual business rules of each facility to really uh, uh, perform what the company or the client of any sort of it's a venue do to get back into the office and reopen. What's your expectation and how long this software and these processes remain a part of our society? Some people might say, well, by the time most people are vaccinated, we don't need this anymore. Why should we continue paying for it? Well, there's a lot of issues here, and what you answered is a very layered question. And so if you think about it, there's so many issues that are re- relevant to your question. One is, what's the rate of vaccination? You mentioned 24 25% now, with 14% getting both uh, shots already. But this will roll out over time. And so what will be the ultimate by August? Will it be 60%? Will it be 90%? We don't even know. Mm. Um, there's, if you look at the polls, about 40% of people really are still reluctant to get vaccinated. And we'll see how that is after... Uh, the summer when people see that it's fairly safe to do. On the other hand, um, you also mentioned how often we'll be, how long we'll be living with this. And I think the yeah. key there. And it, could, it could be a while. I, I, I definitely yes. get your point. We're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately. But thank you, Dr. Somi Ichampati. Okay, thank you. And that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.